A warm welcome to our audience tuning in from different regions. Good afternoon from Singapore. My name is Clemens Che and you are joining us for a virtual book talk hosted by the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. Today we are discussing the book entitled Digital Authoritarianism in the Middle East, Deception, Disinformation and Social Media. And with us today is none other than the author, Dr. Mark Owen Jones. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Before we dive into the thick of the book discussion, let me touch on a few relevant areas. We've seen Mark Zuckerberg's testimony to Congress over, the, over a data sharing scandal in 2018, where questions on privacy, selling personal data, and the importance of regulation were, were answered or unanswered. In Singapore, the bill on the protection from online falsehoods and manipulation was passed in 2019, and there was a study conducted by the Nanyang Technological University earlier this year, asking Singaporeans just how confident they are at spotting fake news amid the pandemic. The answer, about 48 to 53% believe they could tell if a piece of information is true or false. And yet, still, seven in 10 admitted that they have unknowingly shared fake news. So we see how tricky it is in discerning the truth from fabricated information. Now, today we welcome Dr. Mark Owen-Jones, a fellow Durham alumnus, to talk about his recently released book, Digital Authoritarianism in the Middle East, published by Hearst Books and Oxford University Press. Let me introduce his profile. Dr. Jones is an Associate Professor of Middle East Studies at Hamad bin Khalifa University, where he lectures and researches on political repression and informational control strategies. He's also a senior fellow at the Middle East Council on Global Affairs. His recent work has focused, unsurprisingly, on the way social media has been used to spread disinformation and fake news in the Middle East, and as a precursor to the book that we are about to discuss today, he published in March 2019, The Gulf Information War, Weaponization of Twitter Bots in the Gulf Crisis in the International Journal of Communication. His previous work has political repression, including a monograph entitled Political Repression by Bahrain, released in July 2020 by Cambridge University Press. And he has won multiple awards for his work and also for teaching both at Exeter University and HBKU. He's also the editor of numerous books on Bahrain and the Gulf, including Gulfization of the Arab World, published in 2018 by Galak Press. So welcome, Mark. Um, so my first question, and, and I'd like to remind the audience that we'll be rolling on a really conversational style. So please fire away your questions in the chat box as we go along, and I'll be happy to read them out to, to Mark. So Mark, of course, this congratulations on this recently released book. And uh, I'd like to ask the first question, which is how did you come about and how did the idea for this uh, book project come about really? Uh Thank you very much, Clemens, and uh, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be in Singapore virtually, and uh, great to see everyone again. Um, thanks, everyone, just for, for taking the time to, 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 to come and hear, hopefully, what is an interesting conversation. Um, and as Clemens said, please feel free to ask questions. But yeah, I mean, your question is, yeah, it's, it's the classic. How, how does this come about? And um, as an author or an academic, ideas often evolve. So you mentioned uh, I, I, my first book on, on Bahrain. Um, which is about political repression. Uh, and I developed sort of, um, you know, a, sort of a typology of political oppression. And one of the character, one of the, the sort of uh, types of repression was informational controls, uh, which is, is, is simply put is how is information uh, manipulated in order to help uh, repress or oppress particular people. And it was this facet, I think, of my um, work that became most interesting to me. In fact, when I even started my PhD, I initially wanted to focus on how social media was used uh, in, in the uprisings. And I increasingly began to see from 2011 in the Arab uprisings, particularly in Bahrain, at a time when people were talking about how um, social media might be liberating, how it was being used as a tool of surveillance. Uh, and so the different methods and the different kind of nuances and how technology was being used uh, were really interesting to me. And it was here I began to accumulate case studies um, from Bahrain. And when I finished my PhD, I began to look at the wider Gulf. And then, not accidentally, but I started to, to stumble on things. As, as some people will know, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. 
uh, and maybe other social media platforms. And I started to notice behaviors that I, I thought were increasingly uh, sophisticated. Uh, I was also part of an NGO called Bahrain Watch, and you know one of our members was a uh, uh, was was someone attempted to to fish them with spyware or, or send them spyware. Uh, and so one of my colleagues who now works at, uh, former colleagues, I suppose, who works at Citizen Lab now, he became well known at the time for, for being able to, to kind of reverse engineer these surveillance tools. In this case, it wasn't Pegasus, the, the, uh, the NSO group tool, but it was one called FinFisher, which was, which was made in Europe. And it, it had the same functionalities. It could access your computer, it could, or your phone, it could record conversations and, and whatnot. So this notion of surveillance uh, and information controls became really interesting, as did the process of manipulating information in the public space. Now, I think, you know, I, I suppose what's very interesting, and I talk obviously about fake news, um, and I call it deception, which we'll, we'll come to later. But this became very much a zeitgeist, I think, 2015 onwards. Um, you know, it was it was the post-truth age, which is, you know, this idea that we live in an age now where um, it's emotions that often rule what we believe. Uh, there's been a discrediting or a tendency to discredit experts. Uh, and so, you know, the, the very kind of knowledge of our shared reality is changing. But it was also this time that, um, you know, I was, you know, the rise of Trump was was happening and, and, that, and its attendant problems. But I think, you know, what I noticed, especially working on Bahrain and, and just my training, which was in media, was that much of the stuff that we look about in terms of disinformation, deception or fake news is the work of or has been the work of entities that we've known about for a long time. There's an old adage that, you know, if you want to train people to understand fake news, you don't get people from like democracies to go and train people in authoritarian regimes. You get people in authoritarian regimes to train people in democracies because they know the whole playbook. So we've seen this for a long time. But. I think what really interested me, in addition to these kind of classic authoritarian regimes, tactics in controlling the media, which are very conventional, you know, you appoint editors or you fire editors or problematic, you have laws that govern um, or restrict any sort of criticism of the regime. These are classic, we understand these well. But I think what was interesting to me, especially after coming out, studying Bahrain, which was an interesting kind of case study that was probably indicative of other places, was also the role of, say, Western companies in, um, being part of this deception or disinformation apparatus. And I mean, like PR, political communication companies, big ones that in some cases no longer exist, like Bell Pottinger, but companies we've heard more and more about, like Cambridge Analytica, what role do they play? And these are countries that often, you know, have lush offices in Mayfair and other places or Washington, uh, these kind of lobbying groups, what role do they play in actually spreading disinformation and deception but have this kind of legitimacy of operating as an official legal corporation. That bit became very interesting to me as well. And it was, I suppose, trying to break down these um, distinctions between these binary authoritarian um, states versus non-authoritarian states and looking at authoritarian practices or illiberal practices. That is these methods that transcend regime type, whether democracy or authoritarian, and are used to mislead the public um, and so I think, you know, that the idea is that with so much material here over the past five years that I've accumulated in these case studies, that it just became such a, I say an easy book is the wrong term, it's, it's, it's a book is never easy, but it became just such a, um, a logical basis for trying to create this notion of, of, of digital authoritarianism in the Middle East. And I say in the Middle East, in a way loosely, what's the case studies in the book focused in the Middle East? An argument I make is that these deceptive practice that involve different actors from all over the world, from the US to Europe, to Israel, to the Arabic speaking world. They are operations targeted at people in the region, but they're also operations targeted from people within the region, outside the region in order to try and influence opinion. So whilst Middle East is a nexus here, it really is just a nexus. And I, I think what fascinated me about this disinformation thing was it was a global problem and people really hadn't explored as much as possible uh, the problem in the Middle East and focus tend, tend to focus on China or Russia or Iran or what would be seen as traditional Cold War enemies of, of I suppose, Western Europe and the United States. So I thought there was a real gap there. And that's the main reason I kind of came into it. Thanks, Mark. And, and anyone who's picking up your book would see that, you know, there's 15 chapters and they deal with a variety of things. And, and, and that includes COVID-19, that includes, uh, you know, citizen journalists and silencing journalists and, and also of course the Gulf region which you said is, is at the nexus of of your book um, but I wanted to go back to 
that term post-truth moment in the Gulf that you mentioned earlier in your comments. Mm -hmm. And you talked a bit about how this is defined by disinformation synergies, let's just say. And, and you talk about the Arab Spring as well. So how has that kind of digital authoritarianism emerged so soon, you know, after that period dominated by narratives that, you know, technology will bring about democracy mm. as, you know, as was done during the, the Arab Spring. And now you're talking about authoritarianism. How did, you know, where, how do you situate that trajectory? Yeah, well, I think this is a, a really important question. And what it reminds us of the danger of teleologies, the idea that, and, and, and techno-determinism, I think one of the things that we saw, uh, what was very interesting about 2010, 2011, these narratives, these liberation technology narratives, again, that, that, that uh, posit that, you know, digital technology will lead to increased engagement in the public sphere and more discussions, more accountability for governments and democracy. These were based on uh, this, this, this techno-determinism, the idea that technology fundamentally has a set of affordance and functionalities that will transcend culture and social context and somehow liberate people as if they were a separate entity. And you know, I, I take a big issue with this because any tool, whether it's technology or you know, uh, uh, you know, a hammer will be used according to how you want it. You can use a hammer to hit a nail, and you can also use a hammer to I don't know. Um, I can't think of a great example. Just throw at a target. I mean, what you know, you could use it as a sport, like some people use axes. So, you know, tools are used contextually. And I think the effusive narratives around, you know, democracy and the Arab uprising were based on a number of reasons. Firstly, it was great for social media companies because they were then marketing a product. And let's not forget this. And this is a crucial aspect of, of, of the book. And I think increasing critical narratives about technology, social media companies are profit-seeking entities, right? They have to sell a product. And for them, it was fantastic that there were, because people were embracing technology. I'm not saying they weren't. And that they were saying, you know, people in, in Egypt and Tunisia were holding up Facebook logos and Twitter. Because, you know, for that moment, I think there was this sense that um, technology, it did allow people to communicate. And I saw the same in Bahrain. And actually, I, I argue for, uh, in retrospect, a lot of people have demonstrated how naive they were. Because, you know, you know, to quote an example, to cite an example, I mean, one of the things I remember in Bahrain very clearly was you had hundreds of people who weren't particularly political, they might have had opinions, but they weren't activists in the sense that they were marching to the streets, but they wanted to go to Bahrain's Freedom Square, the Pearl Roundabout. And then they take photos of themselves uh, and just, you know, because it was like, people like to take photos of themselves these days, it's, what, it's, it's part of uh, our, our digital culture now. And um, these, they put these photos on Facebook, but their Facebook didn't have any privacy settings. I think the privacy options even then were more limited on Facebook um, because, Privacy wasn't known to be something that could be so easily weaponized. Um, and then you'd have, you know, a few days later, you'd have people who posted their photos on just kind of saying, look, I'm at the power roundabout. Their photos were screenshot. They were being circulated on Twitter. People saying, who are these traitors? They put phone numbers. And soon you'd have the photo with phone numbers and the names of the people in it. And then sometimes those people would then get called into the Ministry of Interior and interrogated, right? So very quickly, people realized that their whole way of using digital technology could easily be instrumentalized uh, and used by the regime um, to, to kind of tackle that. So to, to kind of repress them. And this, this, I think, happened at differing paces across the region, right? Obviously, every country in, in, in the Middle East or every country that had an Arab uprising or spring um, had you know, different results of it. And I think that's important to, to note. Um, and the Gulf is, is different from many other countries in, th in the sense that the Gulf has the highest technological penetration rates, i.e. it has higher internet usage, smartphone usage than many other Arab countries, partly because of its, or mostly because of its wealth. So what this means in theory is that the Gulf has the ability to have a far tighter and more um, uh, panopticon-like surveillance kind of infrastructure and, and, and infrastructure like that. So I think that's key. And I think, you know, the, the kind of idea of liberation technology was was also ascended in the academic discourse. It was just, it was the thing that people spoke about. Um, and I, I, I don't think, I think, you know, sometimes in social media or social movement theory, there's this idea that often activists, I mean, it's constantly an adversarial role between activists and regimes, right? And there's a debate about tactics, but often activists will adopt a tactic that catches the regime off guard, the government off guard, 
And in some cases, you know, you could argue that initially uh, social media, the use of social media caught regimes off guard and that they immediately didn't have the ability to counter what this networked amount of information meant. Uh, and so you have this honeymoon period, I call it, where um, technology is used um, when it's new, uh, enthusiastically and in different ways, then people eventually start to use it because the government hasn't, hasn't yet been able to co-opt it. So I think that's a really important distinction. And it's also very, but the key thing is, is that the social media happened, it came into an authoritarian context. Um, and that context is the ultimate arbiter of what shapes the functionalities and affordances of those platforms, right? So, you know, just having a mobile phone isn't good enough, you know, or having an internet connection with social media isn't good enough because at the end of the day, the regulations in that country could be such that anyone who connects the internet uh, has an IP address that can be that the that the um, network provider or the, the knows, and that if you don't have um, good systems of government, then the government can easily just say to that network provider, "Give us the IP address of this person who we think is a critic," and then they can find out where they live and then arrest them. Right. So if you don't actually have you know good political structures and you have very opaque laws, these digital kind of technologies are very easy to use actually to control people. And that's the important thing to remember. It's not that technology fundamentally shaped things. It maybe did for a moment. And that was partly because of people's naivety. Um, and, and, and I think what we're seeing now is just an awareness from these regimes that um, technology can do this. And they put in place, and I talk about this, lots of systems, whether it's disinformation or surveillance, to prevent widespread networking that can lead to uh, you know, organization and therefore social and political change. Thanks, Mark. And, and you know, a lot of your book talks about, you know, deception, deception, mm -hmm. you know, through social media. And I wanted to ask, and perhaps you could take us quickly through uh, the methods of studying deception and whether there were, you know, ethical issues or an, a dilemma, so to speak. I mean, you, you mentioned that your, the style of book is more on the public impact kind of thing where, you know, it's meant to be able to disseminate info to non-academic audience. So, you know, mm. take us through through this, you know, methodology of yours. How, how did you go about conducting the research? Yeah, well, I mean, many different methods, but um, firstly, I, I, I think the deception is the definition. De deception is a uh, you know, when um, uh, certain actors uh, manipulate the information space through misleading means, and this can be fake content, or it can be fake means of disseminating that content, such as Twitter bots. Uh, so it basically, it's a way of undermining uh, transparency by deliberately misleading people in ways that are designed to cause harm. So that, that's key. Um, and I think, you know, one of the focuses of this is disinformation, right? Disinformation is, is a common one. Disinformation is deliberately false information or the spreading of deliberately false information. Um, so how, how do we study that? Well, it depends, right? And what we're looking at. One of the things that I do look a lot at is Twitter bots um, or fake accounts on social media. Um, just for those who are less familiar, I mean, Twitter bots are, are just software scripts. They look like a real account. Uh, they look like they might be a human, but they're not. They're organized and controlled centrally in order to usually, um, for example, mass retweet someone. So if if in, in, in one case I talk about the Qatar crisis, what we saw in 2017 was, you know, the anti-Qatar opposition, uh, usually in London, were having their tweets boosted, you know, hundreds and hundreds of retweets by fake accounts, accounts that didn't exist. And this algorithmically privileges those tweets and it makes them appear dominant. So if you're searching Twitter for stuff about Qatar, you'll see these anti-Qatar tweets more likely. Bots can also drown out debate. And this is another thing, right? One of the things we have about a public sphere or one of the things about social media that was meant to, to make it liberating was the fact that we could all have our voices heard and discussed. But if, for example, you're talking on a hashtag on Twitter, it's about Singapore or, or the Gulf, and then suddenly you have loads of bots tweeting on the hashtag, it will just remove any of the useful information from real people and dilute that conversation so the conversation or the hashtag becomes un unusable. That's one way of uh, another way a Twitter bot might work. Similarly, trolls are people who harass you, intimidate, uh, try to get you to, if you have an unpopular opinion or opinion that goes against, say, a particular government, they will attack you, uh, attempt to humiliate you or sidetrack you. There's multiple tactics, right? So how do we, how do we study them? Well, it depends. I mean, one of the things 
that kind of spawned the idea of this book is back in 2015, I was looking at Twitter and I noticed lots of unusual activity. It seemed like loads of accounts that looked different were sort of tweeting the same thing. So when I started, I downloaded Twitter data, which is anyone can do because Twitter's um, interface is public, right? And these are public facing tweets. So again, ethically, this is one of the, one of the things that uh, you have to bear in mind. You, you, are, you are downloading publicly available data from people who have uh, publicized it or published it. Um, and I'd be downloading like, you know, say 100,000 tweets, including from real people and finding, um, I call them anomaly detection methods, a way of determining which accounts within that sample are fake. Um, so I'm really dealing with a lot of the time with public data in these cases. Um, in other cases, it has to be, it's more like traditional investigative journalism. In one of the accounts, you know, we talk about, and I think I mentioned last time I was at NUS, we, we, uh, we, you know, there's a whole chapter on how, and this was absolutely mind-blowing really, is how, you know, 25 journalists managed to trick um, 50 international publications into publishing articles. And, and those journalists didn't even exist. They were just some person working for a PR company who was basically trying to push a pro-UE agenda into the international sphere. But in that, you're, you're dealing with people who you don't know. You know that they don't exist or that they're misleading the public because they are engaging in deception. So you have to find out. So you have to like contact editors of newspapers. I even contacted the National University of Singapore to, to, to see if this author who had written a PhD, uh, who claimed to have had a PhD from NUS actually did, and, and she didn't, right? So in these kind of things, you're publicizing it and you have to get a weight of evidence. If someone you know, has a profile on a, on a Newsmax or the national interest saying that they're a real person, the, the standards of proof you have to go forward and try and debunk that are pretty high. Right, because you're potentially dealing with a situation where you could say, "Ha ha, this person is fake," and actually they're not. So, you know, there there is that kind of anxiety. But I've been doing this now since 2011 when I first found this fake journalist. And for me, the ethical—I mean, I'm very clear about this. If you're trying to unpick deceptive actors who are railing against human rights, uh, targeting minorities, uh, harassing women, engaging in racism. Uh, spreading propaganda, then I think ethically we actually have a duty to try and draw attention to that. And in many cases, if these accounts aren't even real people, maybe they're operated by real people down the line who, who, who you never find out, all you're doing is outing fake accounts, right? Um, because the, the sad part of, 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 I suppose, the deception industry is, is that you rarely, rarely find out who is actually behind it, right? So the real people, as much as they're engaging in this nefarious behavior, always remain hidden behind this kind of protective barrier of fake accounts, uh, fake email addresses and this kind of thing. So I think in that case, uh, you know, you're, you're often not really dealing with, with, with you, know, you know, there's a situation when you're not doing that, but you are looking through public data. And at the end of the day, I, I think the, the need to, 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 to find out these deceptive actors outweighs, you know, any potential ethical qualms. I, I think where I draw the line generally is, is you know, I, I, I I'm more interested when it comes to focusing on, on, on those actors who are misleading for the purposes of, of demonizing people and going against human rights. I think that's a key distinction, right? Even though you do get activists, you do get activists, you get groups who use these techniques as well, you know, even pro-human pro rights activists may be using these deception techniques. And of course, it's important to look at that. Uh, I just think when we look at any research, we prioritize, right? So what, how do we prioritize? Well. In my case, I prioritize generally based on, on human rights concerns. Thanks, Mark. And, and one of these, you know, the types of manipulation that you talked about, and you devote uh, you know, more than one chapter talking about the projection of digital power from the Gulf states and the Gulf region. And, and one chapter was on, on Saudi Arabia, and, and you, you talked about Saudi Arabia's rise as a regional digital power rooted mm. in... Uh, its capture of uh, media infrastructure. So mm. now, how did this develop over time and how do you see this evolved form right now? Yeah, yeah, it's a big question. I mean, I think as well, I'll, 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 I'll first go as well to the notion of digital media power, which you, which you mentioned. Firstly, I mean, I talk about the notion of digital media power. I mean, media power has been theorized before. Media power is generally the capture of media or the control of media in order to try and dominate the thought diet of people. If you can control the media and what people read and what people consume 
then you go a long way in trying to, to kind of limit the number of options, ideological or otherwise, that people are exposed to and in theory can influence their behavior, right? But now with digital media, it's changed it somewhat. So the idea of digital media power is, is, is kind of simply defined as what resources does an entity or state have access to in the digital realm that can be used to influence the thought diet of others through censorship or propaganda, right? And one of the cases I make is that this notion of power is connected intimately to a number of things. Obviously, digital technology penetration, you know, how, how many people actually have access to this technology? Because if you have access, you consume as well as potentially broadcast, right? In the edge of digital media, we can broadcast. Um, but also population. And this is, you know, one of the central arguments of the book is that the Saudi Arabia and UAE in particular are emerging digital superpowers. And this means that they can spread in, in theory, they can use digital technology both domestically, regionally and internationally to try and project influence. They have that capability. Um, so I think that's an important thing to kind of mention. And I think with Saudi in particular, there's been a tendency, I suppose, in the past five years to obsess about Mohammed bin Salman and uh, Mohammed bin Zayed. And this is important. I mean, they are obviously very influential and key figures who have changed things a lot. But I think what I want to make the case for with Saudi, it's not like Saudi's rise to become a digital media power, you know, where you have thousands, millions of fake accounts praising Mohammed bin Salman is necessarily a new thing. I mean, first of all, it's, it's, it's common in, in Gulf regimes to praise the leader in, in various times. But um, I think, you know, one of the cases has been made by other scholars is that post the 1990 Gulf War is that Saudi realized, um, you know, there's that classic anecdote that people only really learned about the invasion of Kuwait three days after it happened on Saudi TV. Everyone was watching CNN. And, you know, it was this idea that, you know, Saudi realized that in order to maintain hegemony, they would have to basically invest more, and this is another part of digital media power, is invest more in, in certain media outlets. And, and, you know, this goes back to like Saudi investments in NBC and Rotana and the investments in satellites. You know, a lot of the outlets, cultural news-based media outlets are either owned by Saudi or the United Arab Emirates, certainly in the Gulf. And this started in the 90s and has developed since then. Uh, and, you know, there was old strategies that, Apparently Saudi used to use and still use, I'm sure, of paying journalists, often based in Lebanon, to write pro-regime pieces in the media. So this kind of idea of owning the media, investing in it, is, is, is not like a new concept. I mean, there's many, there's many kind of um, communications models that talk about ownership of the media. Noam Chomsky obviously famously talks about his propaganda model. So we see this in, 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 in the Gulf. It's no different. And I think the, the, the step change really is obviously the emergence of digital technology changed in a way some of the tactics, it, it, it took people by surprise. It's like, well, how do we have this? We have this technology now that everyone can use and broadcast. We're not in full control of what people say. So how then do we change that information space? And sometimes we see the traditional tactics. I mean, we saw, for example, you know, a Saudi prince invest in Twitter, become the single, single largest shareholder uh, behind Elon Musk. Whether or not Elon Musk buys it is a different, a different question. We've even seen, you know, Walid bin Talal argue with Elon Musk about this. You know, this immediately raised concerns that uh, Twitter would lose its independence if it had a large Saudi shareholder. Um, and then we saw, you know, later on Saudi um, trying to infiltrate Twitter using um, Saudi engineers who worked in San Francisco were then co-opted and given bribes and, and expensive watches to basically take data from Twitter headquarters and send it back to Saudi. And to a charity connected to the royal family. So we're seeing what obviously is a demonstrable sense of this technology is important to Saudi, to Saudis and to the Saudi government. How can we co-opt it? And one of the methods has been try to invest it, try to infiltrate it. And in some cases now on the ground, try to um, enable it to keep going, but control the nature of debate through algorithmic manipulation, through the presence of bots, through the presence of trolls who intimidate critics to such an extent that this is huge. And I think the interesting thing about Saudi, because of its population, I mean, we, we don't necessarily need to be talking about bots or trolls. We could be talking about real people here now who are just hyper-nationalists, because this is when population matters, right? If you have a population of 34 million, uh, highly, you know, people who are have access to technology and a large portion of them are hyper-nationalists. Then anyone who criticizes, for example, Mohammed bin Salman, whatever, can will be attacked. And they may be attacked by some trolls who are paid to do it, but they could be attacked by real people. But the point is, 
is that they have more, they have literally, it's like having a larger army. <laughs> you just have more people to do it. And I think one of the interesting things about this is Arabic is, is it's not unique in, in the sense, but it's, it's unusual in the sense that you have 25 different countries that are Arabic speaking, right? And so all those countries, um, most of those countries have access to Twitter. But what it means is whenever there's a political situation in one of these countries, especially outside the Gulf that has lower technological penetration, any country who is Arabic speaking that has people speaking Arabic will dominate the Arabic discourse online by virtue of the size of that population. And that's what we see. We see this Gulf dominance in the Arabic Twitter sphere. And, and I think this is what's really interesting in terms of like, you know, digital authoritarianism, but also digital power in the Gulf, and in particular Saudi, you have a superpower. And, you know, like conventional superpowers, whether it's China or the US, part of that is based on their size, their resources, the size of their armies. And the same is true of digital superpowers, really. Size matters. Um, size, technological penetration matter. And being able to co-opt a population um, to, to, to kind of say certain things is very interesting. And I think, you know, before when you had like traditional media and you had this kind of investment in media that happened again before Mohammed bin Salman, um, is that Mohammed bin Salman has been, and, and Saud al-Qahtani, you know, his perceived henchmen have been instrumental in realizing, Mohammed bin Salman is young, in realizing the, the importance of social media as part of this kind of digital power. So I think, you know, that is really what we've seen change in the past five or six years, is this kind of, the, the idea of controlling media was always there, but I think the shift of the social media, cult of personality around people like Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed, is very much a new thing based on existing traditions. Thanks, Mark. And I'd like to maybe seek some clarifications because a few terms were, were thrown about uh, yeah. in your comments and notably propaganda uh, disinformation. So how do we distinguish you know, propaganda from, from disinformation and also from misinformation in that sense? Uh, and yeah. also, uh, you mentioned hyper-nationalist um, you know, within the Saudi population. And, and, you know, is this projection of digital media power because of an awareness of this youth bulge in, in, in Saudi Arabia, or is it also, uh, you know, a means of controlling the regional narrative that, that goes out, you know, outside of its borders? No, is there, mm. is there a, a motivation that precedes the other in that sense? Mm. Yeah, no, okay. So I'll, I'll answer the first part, the definitional things. So disinformation traditionally is spreading uh, false information with intent, with the knowledge that information is false, right? So it's deliberate. Misinformation is accidentally spreading false information. And I think you gave a nice, uh, you, you mentioned a bit of news in, in your opening speech about how some people accidentally spent false information. That would be misinformation because they're doing it without knowing and unwittingly, right? There's no real malicious intent there. And I, the way I like to remember it is, uh, is misinformation, miss is mistake, right? mistake. So that's how I try to remember it. Um, so, you know, that's disinformation, misinformation, both concern spreading false news. Uh, the difference is about intent. Propaganda, on the other hand, propaganda is subject to much debate, right? So if you take a very broad understanding of propaganda, you could argue that a public health campaign is propaganda. It, it's meant to help people, but the whole point of propaganda is it's meant to persuade meant to persuade people to do a certain thing, right? So people have debated the terms about propaganda and there is Laswell, he, he kind of strips away just the, the broad idea that it's something that can persuade. It has to have some sort of malicious intent designed to cause harm to a specific group of people. So I try to adopt for as much as I can that form of propaganda. It's a form, it's an attempt to persuade people, usually at the expense of someone else. So there's demonization involved or harm involved or something patently false, right? So what, while I say that, you know, all disinformation, disinformation is propaganda, not all propaganda is disinformation. Propaganda can in theory be true, right? It can be selective, but it, it has a, a, is a harmful intent. So I think that's an important thing to clarify. Uh, I think, you know, the, the, the question about Saudi is an interesting one. I don't think it's always, always straightforward, right? My sense is that, you know, What's happening in Saudi, and this, this is an argument I make for the post-truth the post moment of the Gulf, right? These things don't happen by accident. You know, if you have, you have a number of things happening in the past five years. I mean, a lot of things, right? From the Gulf crisis to normalization with Israel, to Mohammed bin Salman becoming the de facto ruler of Saudi, 
Um, all of these things, and you know, and another one being the, the reversal of the JCPOA under Trump, all of these things, and and in 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 history of world, when you make these big policy changes, you have to try as much as you can, whether you're in an authoritarian regime or not, to bring people along with you. You have to try and bring public opinion along with you, right? So if if you're unprepared and you'd go about it in a half-assed way, you'd be like, right, I'm Mohammed bin Salman, I'm going to change, you know, regulations about women driving, I'm going to change this, X, Y, Z, and just to hell with the consequences. That's not really how governments work. I mean, it would be foolish and I think naive to think that, right? So someone like, I think in Saudi, firstly, you have to, I mean, I mean this is where notions of totalitarianism come in. This is an idea that you have to actually have, it becomes as much about the leader as the policies. But firstly, I think you have to inculcate a sense of nationalism, and that nationalism ideally has to have some form, in this case, a leader like Mohammed bin Salman. And so once you project that, uh, this change is necessary, it's patriotic, and the spearhead of this is Mohammed bin Salman, who represents the youth, he is of the youth, uh, then the things he does uh, can happen more easily. So I think there is an element of pre-organization about this. The, 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 you know, the, the, the thousands of accounts that Saudi flags um, you know, we're talking, we're talking hundreds of thousands of fake accounts, right, in addition to real ones that we know from New York Times investigations, people are paid, right, to, to, to protect and defend Mohammed bin Salman's reforms, in a way also helps create nationalism, right? So I think you have the strategy of trying to, uh, it, you know, sort of uh, lionize Mohammed bin Salman with the view that Saudi is making a lot of changes and therefore needs to kind of legitimize that. But in addition to that, you also, by stifling criticism, you're creating a space in, in, in which only celebrations of nationalism and the ruler elite can take place, right? So you've created a kind of system that reinforces itself. And I think that's what's really interesting. I'd, I'd be very, I, I, you know, and I, from what I understand, I know public opinion polls aren't always that great in thing, but there is a lot of popularity to what MBS is doing amongst the youth, you know, as far as, as, far as I know. I mean, obviously there's lots of people who, who really hate him too. <laughs> Um, so I think there is, you know, there's truth in it and there's visible change in what's going on. And I think this helps validate some of those nationalist tropes. And, but, you know, I, I think the scary thing about this is, is, though, is that I've seen it so many of the times, though, when it comes to, say, Saudi foreign policy, because we're talking on a domestic level in many ways when we talk about the change going on in, in Saudi. But obviously, you know, these are countries that have traditionally had a big role in the region, the Middle East and the Gulf. And so, you know, what I've seen in, you know, like a, a pertinent example would be what's going on in Tunisia right now, um, which is when Said last year basically had his auto coup, if you read about Tunisia on Twitter, the most, the most dominant narrative were the narratives coming out of the Gulf. It was actually very hard to find Tunisian voices on Twitter, largely because Tunisians don't use Twitter as much, but because of the volume of Saudi accounts, real and fake, that were engaged in, uh, this kind of, oh, Kais Said is justified in what he's doing because he's trying to get rid of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is an, a narrative that many people believe, but also this is clearly a security narrative from the Gulf states, Saudi and UAE, who've been really, you know, strident in their kind of attacks on the Muslim Brotherhood. It was very much coming at that. So you find that the narrative from the Gulf often dominates other conversations. And I think this, 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 this kind of digital media power, the sense of the discourse being dominated by Gulf states has been the product of you know, this, um, this kind of inculcation of, of hyper-nationalism and also, you know, the product of there not being enough dissent to contest that because the whole space is, is dominated by, by these Gulf countries. Thanks, Mark. Um, and, and, and I wanted to ask, I would like to take a step back from the region really and, and, take, and, and, and look at, you know, algorithm, and AI and automating deceit in that sense. And mm. of course, we know now that AI is able to produce deep fakes. And, and this is something uh, my colleagues and I sometimes chat about. But I wanted to ask, you know, your, your book is replete with case studies and examples. So do you have a prominent one that you would be able to describe as an anecdote here on, on, on automating deceit, really? Yeah, I mean, there's numbers, right? So. AI, you know, artificial intelligence is obviously a broad term and there's, you know, AI can be used, AI is often the result of machine learning, right? Machine learning might be 
processing massive amounts of data in order to better create models that predict or imitate human behavior. So one of the things that in terms of automating to see, I think what was very interesting in terms of local news in Saudi, right? So what, when what, Saudi is comprised of multiple different regions, right? And each of those um, has its own cities and towns. But what I noticed for about five, six years on Twitter is that a number, there, there was a kind of a number of newspapers or news outlets were set up, right? And they would have like um, names like Tabuk uh, Alyum, you know, like Tabuk Today or Dumam Now, you know, they're almost like anglified newspaper names, right? And there was one for every province in Saudi Arabia. And these accounts were tweet basically on any regional hashtag. So Tabuk Alyum would tweet on that hashtag, right? So if anyone was looking at news from Tabuk or in Tabuk, they would uh, see that hashtag potentially. And what these, although these uh, newspaper, these news outlets were looked independent, that they were like, you know, news organizations that were, were their own thing, they were actually centrally controlled and that they were all retweeting content from a channel called Saudi 24. And this was all automated, right? So every day they would, uh, they would publish news that was from Saudi 24, again, which is close to the regime, uh, with the illusion that it was independent journalism and flood the regional hashtags with basically propaganda. And this was all done on an automated basis. Um, and you'd see the same even with sectarian hate speech, like accounts belonging to the same news channel would engage in anti-Shia hate speech or anti-Iranian hate speech, and this would be automated. So you'd literally have an account saying something sectarian, and then thousands of other accounts just saying the same thing automatically, right? And, you know, if you looked at a hashtag about Iran or like the man, you, chances are you'd see a sectarian tweet. But there's been developments in it now, and I think one of the scary things we're going to see, in addition, you know, in terms of content writing, things are quite primitive. I think in a few years time, we'll have computers that can write very convincing content. So now if you had a bot that was actually creating unique content in Arabic, it would, in five years, I think that's gonna be a real problem. But I, you know, what we're seeing now is human face imitation, even videos. Some of you might have remembered that at the beginning of the Russian reinvasion of Ukraine, that there was a fake video of Zelensky going around basically telling, I think, Ukrainians to surrender. And it was very convincing. Um, but we see, we've seen this in Middle East, and one of the operations that I uh, investigate was these fake journalists I mentioned before who tricked, you know, 50 different news outlets. They were using AI-generated images as profile pictures. So you couldn't reverse image these because they were unique faces, right? So AI has already reached a point where we could create a really convincing picture of a, a human and use it as a profile photo. And this is, you know, a question is like, do we need to verify social media accounts more? Because... Um, if you can just use AI to generate an image and that image then can be used the basis of to trick someone else, then we have a real problem. And this is, we're seeing this all around uh, the, the use of this in the Middle East. And, you know, again, it's a new technology. If an authoritarian regime has access to these means of technology, they will use them, right? And social media in many ways are complicit. Companies are complicit in big tech because they are providing a platform that can be so easily manipulated by AI by the fact that you don't need to be a real person to set up the account, or there's very few safeguards to ensure that you're a real person, that bots and, and robots can set up these fake accounts. Thanks, Mark. And, and you talked a bit about the, the Ukraine war, and we've got mm. questions coming in already, and I'd like to encourage our audience to keep the questions rolling in. Um, yeah. There's a question on the influence of Russia's Arabic language media active in the Middle East, like Sputnik and Russia Today. Uh, the question is, do you see state-controlled media in the Gulf increasingly parroting the narrative in Sputnik and RT, say, with regard to the Ukraine war, and how influential are Sputnik and RT in influencing the content of digital media and discussions in the Gulf? Mm. You know, I think Sputnik Arabic is incredibly popular, um, and I think this is a growing issue. We We know that also that the, the Wagner group who, who you know, like uh, these Russian mercenaries who have been very active in Libya have also apparently been reported to be training um, the regime in Sudan. Um, so I think there is one, there's a growing understanding of Russian uh, influence in terms of social media and deception operations in the Middle East. But also I think just the, the Russians are always very adept at tuning into what it is I think people in this region find important. And the Ukraine war is a really interesting example. So 
when when we had uh, I think it was the end of February, beginning of March, there was an I stand with Putin hashtag, which showed a lot of manipulation coming out of India, Pakistan. But again, it resonated really strongly in the Middle East because what a lot of the memes that you saw, um, again, that were parroting Russia Today content was this idea that, you know, this was not a war between Ukraine and Russia. It was a war between Russia and NATO and NATO and the West were the countries who had invaded Iraq and, and you know, other places in the Middle East, completely ne neglecting the fact that Russia's involvement in Syria, Libya, and Afghanistan were relevant, but it played on these really, really carefully in an interesting way. And I think this narrative, at least in my experience, the Middle East has been really dominant. It's like, well, you know, look what the West did, we don't support them. And the, Russia, the Russians, I think, really picked up on this. And so they have a receptive audience, but uh, Russia Arabic is it's hugely influential and as is Sputnik. So I think it's something, you know, I think it's something that we needs to be looked into more. Um, I know, I know there's some research, you know, done on on the the, the influence of I think Sputnik in, in Egypt. Um, but yeah, it's the Russians are really adept at, at I think tapping into people's um, those those nuances that can really tilt people's perceptions of a conflict. And 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 I'm, we're definitely seeing that with this conflict. Thanks, Mark. Another question is on China, um, and the question is about China's ICT infrastructure footprint increasing by the day in the Middle East and especially in the Gulf, and whether this would enable a Middle East panopticon or a really disciplined society in, in, in the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm doing a lot of work now actually on, on pro-Beijing propaganda on Twitter. It's quite interesting. But um, in terms of the infrastructure, yeah, I think the infrastructure already exists in, in many ways, whether it's Chinese or American or Swedish. You know, a lot of the infrastructural capabilities uh, are, you know, you can you can connect people to the Internet in a country. And again, your legal framework, your governance structure will determine what access the government would have to that. And it's that really that creates the panopticon, right? So in many Gulf countries, you have an ID card, I give my phone number and and, and they can find out almost anything about me, right, in theory. Um, I think the thing is when foreign infrastructure comes in, the, the question is always about to what extent does that allow potentially the country giving the technology or advice to be able to tap into those and then use that, right? So I think the panopticon thing will exist regardless of technology. The question is to what extent do foreign states compromise another country, you know, with Code. I mean, when Snowden gave the, the 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 leaks about the NSA, I mean, he he stated that one of the things was that you know American companies would slip code into technology softwares and you know in from Germany to to Japan, right? And they were allied countries, right? So that's a concern. Uh, but I think in terms of how people are monitored, yeah, it doesn't matter whether it's Chinese or, or American or Russian. Thanks, Mark. We got another question about robots and bots in general and how well and, and our relationship with, with these bots and and the fact that while surfing websites we are required to prove that we are humans and, and all that capture you know requirements so the question is do you don't you think that the tables have already turned isn't it too late for humans to reclaim the social media is change or any re kind of reversible reversal possible well i'm very cynical so I'm, I'm the wrong person to ask. But yeah, I mean, I, I do find that I'm not a bot thing hilarious, you know, trying to prove that I'm, I'm, I'm actually a human is, 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 is kind of an absurdity that we have to live with. I think, um, you know, I do think a reversal is, is a difficult one. I, I think, you know, short of, short of some sort of catastrophe that would really set back technological development, it's going to be very hard to see any reversal in the how we use technology because at the end of the day as well, even if we could agree as a, as a globe what standards there were in terms of AI and, and you know, potential human sentience, that's going to be really hard, especially when there's wars breaking out. People will start to use technology in ways that they can achieve a military or strategic advantage. And it's often in those developments that we see these problems. Um, but I, I do think that, uh, yeah, I think social media companies, for example, you know, Elon Musk now is, is having this big show about how many bots Twitter has, how many fake accounts. And I think whilst I dislike Elon Musk, I think he has a point. Um, I, I think the business model of these companies is such, and this again is where, you know, the, the, the kind of means of production, 
the political government system, the economic system matter. As long as the business model for a company like Twitter is to secure advertising revenues from demonstrating the size of its user base, it's going to incentivize the creation of users, whether real or fake in many ways. And so, you know, with that business model, all you're doing is, 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 is kind of keeping that incentive there. Uh, and obviously with less revenues, you can't, or, you know, in theory, if you're not investing in moderators in other languages, your platform is just going to be abused. Right now I'm seeing like thousands, thousands of pro-Beijing Twitter accounts. And it's quite funny because they're using an American platform to spread anti-American propaganda and pro-Russian propaganda in a time where the US has tried to make a big thing about curbing the influence of, of these kind of things. Uh, so I, I don't see that changing. I, I think um, increasingly, you know, the, you know, in, in a way, I mean, it's complex as well. Like our own data, your data that you give to Facebook or Twitter or just data to Google to see where you are is being monetized, but it's also being used to train algorithms that, or machine learning that is then used to try to replicate human behavior. So in a way, all, all our information resources, our knowledge, our practices, our behaviors are being used to train computers that are meant to then resemble us. So in a way we are part of this kind of continuum of the hive mind. <laughs> so I think it's not even a question of us versus them. It's a question of to what part, to how much of us is actually in those, those robots, you know, which is a more of a philosophical question, I suppose, but why not, you know? <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Mark. And, and, and we got one more question. And I think you, you, you address this somewhere in your book, you know, um, mm -hmm. about, you know, the fact that citizen journalism is prevalent, microjournalism is, is prevalent. So what's the question is, what's the role of newspaper editors as gatekeepers in preventing disinformation today? I mean, that's, it's huge. I mean, I think what's, what surprised me most, I think, in this book was, is, is, is again, the investigation I made in, into those fake journalists who fooled 50 different publications, right, is that everyone was talking about fake news, disinformation since 2015, especially journalists, right? Because it concerns the very field which journalists, academics inhabit, information. And what was amazing is when I spoke to the editors of a lot of these publications who had been fooled, None of them had ever had a had a video conversation with the people they were speaking to. Um, it had been by email, at most by phone. Um, and at the end of the day, like in some of those cases, a reverse image search would have probably showed that those people were fake. At the same time, I'm not saying that this is, you know, I'm not blaming them because I know they're under pressure. And, you know, there's a certain amount of trust that we have to have in people to do our job. But at the end of the day, if those editors had found out that it was fake, those fake articles wouldn't have been published. So I think, you know, the role of these gatekeepers is still key. But what it goes to show is that even crude operations where one of you here creates a social media account, creates like a LinkedIn profile, Facebook, you know, writes for a blog and then puts it on muckrake to give you the illusion that you're a journalist and then writes a pitch to an editor, you know, and gets your work published. It's, it's kind of alarming that we can that can happen. And that is still happening in 2020, you know, years after you've had this post-truth debate. So yeah, editors really matter. And, and you know, they're on the front line when it comes to these publications. Uh, it's, I can't really stress it enough. Um, and it is one of the, it still surprises me to this day, you know? I mean, I did media and journalism at university and I, one of the things we learned about was, was the classic case of Stephen Glass, who was an American journalist who worked in New Republic which was the in-flight magazine for Air Force One. And he made up dozens of his stories and eventually was outed um, by a diligent editor. But this was a time really before social media could be used to verify those people. Uh, so I think we have the technology and the means, but I do think it's gonna get harder and harder. Again, if we have AI developing, you know, you could create a video. You could even, if you had a phone call with an editor, it wouldn't be enough, a video call, it wouldn't necessarily be enough to prove that someone's fake or not. So, you know, media literacy, again, is key. I know people always say this, but, you know, training people that, to be critical in, in these kind of things, even if it means, listen, speak to this person on video. <laughs> Seems simple, but people don't do it. Yep. Another question from the floor. Uh, is ISIS propaganda still strongly present in the Gulf? And if so, what is its impact? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's not as prevalent as it was. I mean, a lot of resources have been, a lot of social medias, again, social media are very reactive to issues that impact really US, Western foreign policy. 
And so when ISIS became an issue, you know, they did a lot of work to try and clamp down on disinformation. But I've been tracking um, ISIS propaganda on and off for the past few years, and it still exists. And you still get like really crude, again, automated accounts that are able to share videos, ISIS videos that get thousands and thousands of views. So it's really prevalent. Um, analyzing the impact of propaganda is always tricky, right? Because so much of the time you see the propaganda, but you don't know who's consuming it. So it's actually hard to see whether people are actually uh, reading or seeing it. But I think um, I think my argument is, is that unless there's massive structural changes or social cultural changes in, in how, um, you know, in, in certain cases of injustice, propaganda will still be receptive. So if you don't remove the problem that, for example, made ISIS popular, the propaganda will still appeal to people. The question is, is we don't always know um, who is actually watching. So becoming doing studies like that can be very hard. Social media, it's, it's, a tr it's traditionally difficult in media studies is, is, is the impact and, and um, effects are hard. But I would say, yeah, because a lot of the things that caused ISIS to, to come about haven't necessarily changed in a dramatic way. I mean, to a certain extent, Iraq. Uh, but in the Gulf states, I think the, the things that the support for ISIS wasn't necessarily coming from a sense of what it was like to live in Iraq. It was a sense of injustice against Muslims and, a and, and elements of sectarianism. And I don't necessarily think those are being addressed. Thanks, Mark. We've got another question on, on the US administration. And I think you, you wrote about this uh, in your book on, on the relationship between the Trump and the US right wing and that Saudi anti-Iran nexus. I think you mm -hmm. wrote about this in, in your book, one of your chapters as well. And the question is, how do you think uh, this relationship between the US administration and the Gulf states change changes the, the media narrative, social media narrative so far, especially with the Biden administration you know, in power mm -hmm. right now? And what, how do you see things move forward uh, after his term? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the rise of Trump, um, again, the Gulf Post proof moment was actually really a result of the election of Trump, the rise of MBS, because Trump empowered MBS. Um, Trump overturned the JCPOA, which is obviously what Saudi wanted, what Israel wanted. And again, you had, you know, years under Obama, of people, uh, him getting people used to the idea of this rapprochement with Iran suddenly changed. So what did the US do? They poured resources into their own propaganda agency. Um, to 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 basically try and uh, it's, you know the Iran disinfo project, which was to which was ended up attacking American citizens who weren't critical enough of Iran, which is ridiculous. Uh, and 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 in Saudi, you have thousands of fake accounts uh, and real accounts praising Trump, talking about how great Trump was. Uh, you had John Bolton empowering the Mujahideen al Khalq, uh, and suddenly loads of fake MEK accounts boosting up. You even had Donald Trump retweeting. Uh, Heshmet Alawi, who's not even a real person, he's a he's operated by multiple different accounts. This is MEK propaganda. You had him emboldening those those accounts, and in a way establishing this kind of weird. Like if you look at some of these anti-regime accounts in Iran, you look at their followers, and whether or not they're real is is not clear. But sometimes up to five to ten percent of their followers are people who have "Make America Great Again" pro-Trump accounts in their profile. So they've created this nexus between this anti-Iranianism this pro-Saudiism and this kind of Trumpism that are formed together in this interesting mix. And I've even seen attempts to try and, from the region, to try and influence the right wing in the US. So you've had Saudi journalists working with American citizens who are pro-Trump uh, and, and getting them to basically talk in English about Middle East policy, why Saudi is great or why you know Iran is bad, in order that they put these videos out there and hope that the, that content then finds its way into the US right-wing ecosystem from a grassroots perspective, right? So you've seen this really strange kind of convergence of Trumpism and anti-Iranianism in Saudi. And I think this is part of a top-down endeavor, obviously, because we know that you know uh, the Saudi regime have, have really supported Trump because of his stance against Iran. Um, and I think the the you know, that emboldenment that resulted in the Gulf crisis, which also resulted in this campaign of disinformation, again, the post-truth movement, uh, is, is really key. So the Trump-Saudi nexus has, has changed so many pol policy things in the region that have necessitated disinformation and propaganda, that that's why we have this post-truth moment. And I think the rise of Biden, um, or at least Biden will change some things in terms of Israel policy, it's not going to change. He's seen as pro-Israel, pro, pro 
Israel. So the Israel nexus of disinformation is going to kind of die down. There is obviously suspicion about his attitude to uh, Iran. But, you know, I think generally the disinformation machine out of the region is anti-democrat. You know, there's a lot of there was even like um, an attempt to make it sound like there had been new Hillary Clinton leaks. And there was thousands of camps on this hashtag, you know, calling out Hillary Clinton for supporting terrorism and supporting Al Jazeera. So the, 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 the kind of regimes here distrust Democrats generally. Uh, they would certainly favor a Trump uh, regime. And I think, you know, um, it, it's it's I don't know who's going to get elected in the next election. But I think there's a sense, given Biden's low numbers, that it's a waiting game um, and that um, there will be a Republic, potential Republican president next and that things will fall in line in terms of the, the things that, uh, you know, the Saudis and the Emiratis want, especially if it's a pro-Trump candidate. So I think that will happen. And I think that means we'll see continued kind of disinformation deception. And I think we'll see a lot more. There's a lot more now. You know, what we see is this obviously regime desire in Saudi to normalize with Israel, but that's an unpopular policy decision amongst people. So we're going to see lots of nudge techniques to try and, I think, uh, try and get Saudis and Emiratis on actual citizens on board with normalization. And the only way to do that is through propaganda and disinformation. We're already seeing a lot of this. There's a lot of attempts to remove support from Palestinians in Arabic language campaigns. So I think we'll see more of that as well. That's the forecast, the disinformation forecast. Thanks for that forecast, Mark. I think we'll probably need a, a chat on the side about this, uh, and I can't believe it's already an, been an hour. Um, but we are going to wrap up the discussion with one more question, one final question, which I think it's apt to, to round off the, the discussion, which is which brings back to what you said earlier. We need more critical thinkers you know, mm. out there. And the question really, or the context is, Gulf states are investing hugely in quality education postgraduate education in particular and encouraging entrepreneurs, to what extent would more critical or independent thinkers among the population dilute digital authoritarianism in the Gulf? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good question. It's important. I mean, firstly, money, uh, as studies have shown, money isn't actually that important in education. I think there's, there's many studies that show that the Gulf is some of the biggest investors in education in terms of spending and get some much poorer results than countries who spend a lot less. I think like Singapore as well, they get great results, but don't spend nearly as much as the Gulf. Or yeah, it's a really strange thing, but I think the importance there is not necessarily funding, it's, it's the critical thinking. But I think critical thinking, when there's certain red lines, you can't always encourage critical thinking. If it's red lines about religion, about criticizing the government, how, which are all things that are massively taboo in the Gulf, then it limits the general capacity of critical thinking because critical thinking should be boundless, right? You know, often critical thinking, the way we engage with it first is to challenge those very things that are so dominant in our lives, which it might be government or religion, or I don't know, some uh, beliefs that we might have. And, and I think it's really important. But at the same time, you know, as someone who actually teaches here, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. You, you, I, what I saw, what an interesting thing about the Gulf crisis is that it really shattered people's, I think, uh, normative conceptions of what it, what they were seeing in the media. Because suddenly they had this situation where the GCC was like generally pally to suddenly them turning against the government. And I, I've seen it makes people question what they consume in terms of media. So I think that was a really interesting moment. And I think you know you can have these experiences that confront people. Uh, with these facts that make them question things. Uh, but I think at the same time, um, yeah, critical education. And I think within the, 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 not just media literacy, but with understanding communications is really key. And I don't, I don't know to what extent many governments would necessarily encourage that. Um, or I know like, uh, you know, it's happening um, both in Qatar, even the UAE, and I guess to an extent Saudi. Um, but again, I think that the benefits of having these, these changes will, will, will differ. But also, I mean, you know, what's happening in Saudi, for example, is, is a really good example of how the, the regime's always balancing between just because someone's critical and aware that might be lied to, it doesn't mean you change necessarily their calculus of what it is they want. Do they still want a good job? If they do, will that mean that they'll be happy? There's the classic rentier paradigm, which, which kind of demotes what people want in this idea that we're all just people who want a good job and stuff. But I think you, it's it's more subtle than that. Often we do want a job, and that might help locators. Um, so I think you know if you have a critical population, but they have great jobs and, and are happy, then you know that critical knowledge isn't necessarily going to make you overturn 
a regime that you think suits your your purposes. Uh, so I think it's a complex question, but I'm all for more critical education. Thanks, Mark. And, and that's Mark's opinion on, on more critical thinkers out there. Uh, we have come to today's, uh, at the end of today's discussion. I thank everyone for joining us today. And I also thank everyone for your questions. Uh, we, I don't think we barely even tackled half of the issues that are being discussed in Mark's book, which include a diverse array of themes, you know, that include football, sports washing, you know, uh, COVID disinformation and attacking women and, and all these uh, important topics that would, of course, now encourage you to purchase this book and grab a copy of your own. Uh, we will be sending out uh, a post-event email with a discount code for, for his book. And again, I thank everyone for joining us today from wherever you are. Mark, I thank you for joining us and addressing all these questions really diligently. I think it's all very been very fascinating. So thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. Take care, guys. Thanks, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye.